Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what's the legacy of America's interventions? The US is leaving Afghanistan. 20 years since they first entered the country, U.S. troops will withdraw under President Biden's promise to end America's forever wars. When President Biden announced the withdrawal, he emphasized his personal connection to the conflict. I'm the first president in 40 years who knows what it means to have a child serving in a war zone. And throughout this process, my North Star has been remembering what it was like when my late son Bo was deployed to Iraq, how proud he was to serve his country. America's military interventions are also highly personal to my guest this week, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth. In 2004, she was shot down by Iraqi insurgents from the Black Hawk helicopter she was flying. A rocket-propelled grenade pierced the cockpit and exploded at her feet. Against all the odds, she survived, but she lost both of her legs. Subsequently, she's exchanged the military battleground for a political one. Senator Duckworth is part of the new wave of Democrats from ethnic minority backgrounds, elected to be the Democratic representative for Illinois' 8th District. She became not only the first woman with a disability in Congress, but also the first Thai American woman. Recently, she took President Biden to task for failing to select any Asian Americans into his cabinet, and he listened. She was also considered as a potential running mate by the president, only to lose out to Kamala Harris this time. She's written a book called Every Day's a Gift, and it opens with the US Army warrior ethos, I will never accept defeat, I will never quit. Tammy Duckworth, welcome to The Economist Asks. It's so good to be on, thank you. Now, people know you for being part of a new era, I think we could say, in the Democratic administration. You've had a very rapid descent yourself up the ranks of the party since you joined the House of Representatives in 2012. And you're now Illinois senator since uh, 2017 and vice chair of the DNC, that powerful uh, Democratic National Committee. It's going pretty well. What do you want to achieve with it all? I want to serve my country. I want to make my country better and do better things for the people of Illinois and, and the people for the rest of America. It's it's my whole reason for service. It's, 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 you know, what makes me tick, I guess. And you're also known for being the second of three Asian women to serve as senator, the first Thai American woman to be elected to Congress. We talk a lot about representation these days and that Congress, like uh, other parliaments in the world, should look more like their voters. But what does representation mean to you personally? Well, I've seen the difference that representation can make. Just myself, in my own lived experiences, I had always been supportive, for example, of moms who work outside the home and, and, and family leave policies and, and you know family-friendly policies. And I was supportive of breastfeeding, for example, and women's rights to breastfeed. 
But until I had my own baby and was trying to travel and express breast milk for my baby at the same time, it was only then that I realized, wow, I really can't do this because there's nothing is set up that allows me to do this in an easy way. And so I was able to, after several years, pass legislation. So now if you're in the United States and you go through an airport, any airport, and you see a lactation room, that's me. <laughs> that's thanks to Abigail, my daughter. So representation matters until we had an actual breastfeeding mom. I was only the 10th mom, the 10th woman to give birth in the house and the first to give birth in the Senate. And so we need more, you know, women of childbearing age with you know, work, moms who are working outside the home and trying to juggle. And last month, you and Senator Maisie Hirono said you would withhold votes on President Biden's nominations to the cabinet because there weren't any Asian Americans or Pacific Islanders in the top jobs. You then back down, which I assume means that you thought it was a somewhat symbolic uh, protest. The White House did announce it would appoint a senior official to focus on Asian American priorities. Uh, do you think your protest was effective? Oh, I didn't back down. I got what I wanted within hours. And we reached an agreement. That's why I said, OK, I'll vote for future nominees. And I got exactly what I wanted. I can't talk about everything that, that the agreement was, but I can tell you that there is now a very senior AAPI staffer in the White House West Wing. That was one of the first things I said they needed because they don't have anybody who can stand up in the Oval Office and say, you're making a mistake here, Mr. President, on, on Asian Americans and Pacific Islander legislation, or this is what needs to be done. And we have that person now, Erica Moritsuku. We also got a meeting with the president, with the entire Asian Pacific Caucus in the White House. We were there and had an extensive time with the president where we then made additional asks of him. And then there are other parts of the agreement that are that are ongoing, um, not the least of which being their commitment to uh, appoint and at the very least nominate Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders to cabinet level positions from here on out. And would you give the president an ultimatum on any other issue that you happen to disagree with? Because you're clearly a fighter. I mean, you said you got what you wanted. That's uh, You're a fighter. I mean, we know you're a fighter because we know a bit about your yeah. biography, which we've heard about at the top yeah. of the show and we'll come back to. Yeah. But it is a bit, you know, it, it can be diminishing returns, that approach, can't it, is to, to withhold support. So what's the balance there between being fighty and uh, making your peace with your party and indeed with the White House. Well, the story here is that I have been working with the White House for well over six months, even before they were sworn into office. And in fact, have been sending them names of AAPI nominees who are well qualified and more qualified than some of the people that were eventually nominated for the top positions. And most of them did not get a single interview. And so, and I had also voted for every single nominee the White House had put forward, every white person, every black person, every Latinx person, every person of LGBTQ identity, every person that the White House had nominated that came before the Senate, I voted yes on. And so after six months of continually talking and being made promises, that's when I said, okay, enough is enough. And that for me is the balance. You know, I am a team player. Uh, I, I know how to be part of the team. I did it for 23 years in the army. But frankly, when it gets to a certain point that you feel that you're not being taken seriously enough. And this is what has happened to the AAPI community in this country. We are often seen as, well, they'll just go, go, go do the job. You're, you're, you're the model minority. You'll do what you're told. Um, you're not going to create waves and, and just, you know, you, you can take the deputy position. All right. Just go be the deputy position. And, and it, it was enough. And so I stood up and I will tell you that I got tremendous support from the Black Caucus and the Latinx, the Hispanic Caucus. So the Tri Caucus stuck together. And, and, and I was really proud that we came together because, frankly, 
you know, the three different caucuses, we're tired of fighting over the one slice of pie that's labeled the diversity slice. There is enough pie for everyone. We shouldn't have to have people, you know, the minority groups all fighting over the one slice of diversity pie. So, you know, it's about working together. We are all family. We're on the same team. But at a certain point in time, you have to be assertive. And I, you know, I, after six months and doing and going along, I felt that I needed to be assertive to get my point across. And I did. The anti-Asian hate bill, which of course you were a big mover behind, has just passed unanimously through the Senate and it comes at a time after those deadly attacks on the Asian community in Atlanta, very distressingly, in rising violence more broadly uh, linked to the pandemic. It does feel like it is quite little and too late. Do you sometimes look back and say there were opportunities that were missed here? Oh, there were many opportunities that were missed before now, but I don't think that without the shootings in Atlanta and the year of anti-Asian violence under President Trump, that the American people would have seen what AAPIs have been going through. This narrative of AAPIs being targeted, being the victims of hate crimes, has been going on for literally hundreds of years. Um, not just, you know, not just not just a year or months or decades, but hundreds of years. I mean, we've had our citizenship revoked after earning the citizenship with the Chinese Exclusion Act. What we have now is a point in time when the American people are understanding the anti-Asian violence that happens. And I don't I don't think this piece of legislation would have been able to get to where it has gotten without this moment in time. And I'm so proud that, as I've said, the tri-caucus stuck together and that we have been each other's allies in this process. Is there more that could be done? Absolutely. But this is a good first step. You grew up moving around Southeast Asia. You have a, a family background there with various sort of strands in it, which, which cover different countries in Asia. And you spent your adolescence in Hawaii. And I wondered how that shaped your worldview and your view of America in the world. Yeah, so I grew up in Southeast Asia post-Vietnam. My mother is Thai. My, my parents met in Thailand. My dad was an American service member. But unlike a lot of American service members, uh, he stayed and married my mom and had us kids and raised a family there, as opposed to a lot of American servicemen um, left, right? They, they, they had their... Uh, they started a family in Thailand or Vietnam or wherever, and they left. And so you have this generation of children of the dust, as they were called in Vietnam, of Amerasian children who were essentially thrown away. So I grew up knowing that I was incredibly privileged and lucky. And I saw the great privileges of being an American. I saw the opportunities that were open to me just by nature of being of having, having that American passport. And I think it made me so much more patriotic than as if I had grown up in the United States for those early parts of my childhood. You know, I, I, I got to watch Vietnamese boat people flee communism. I watched Cambodians flee the Khmer Rouge and I understood the oppression and in, in parts of the world. And then when I came to the States when I was 12 and then later when I was 16, I understood the freedoms that we have in America, that Americans take for granted the privileges of being an American. And so I knew from early on that I wanted to serve. Um, I just didn't know that I was going to end up being in the Army or in the United States Senate. I thought I was going to serve in like the Peace Corps or, or you know, or maybe if I was really lucky uh, in an embassy as a foreign service officer someday. You were a soldier in Iraq. In 2004, you were deployed as a Black Hawk helicopter pilot and the front lines and the helicopter you were flying in was shot down. You were very seriously injured and you lost your legs in that. I was going to say accident. It wasn't really an accident. It was a an attack. No, they were aiming. <laughs> they took aim. <laughs> it was to whom it, to whom it may concern, wasn't it? <laughs> and that, you know, you, you've written about this very 
eloquently. How much did that change you? You still come across as someone, if you like, who has that slightly fighting spirit, but how much did it change your character? It, I think it made me better. The, the book that I wrote is called Every Day is a Gift because every day, including that day when I was shot down, has been a gift because I should have died in that field in Iraq and my buddies didn't leave me behind. They, they thought I was dead. I never even got a tourniquet because they, they looked at me and they said, you know, your lower, the lower half of your body was gone. Um, they were just recovering my body for my family to have something to bury and so that the insurgents wouldn't have a female American soldier's body to drag through the streets of Baghdad. So they were recovering what they thought was a corpse, but they they were not going to leave me behind. They lived the warrior ethos. And every day since that day for me has been a gift, a gift given to me by, by the heroism of these men. And so I have gained a North Star in my life from that day. Uh, yes, it affected me. Obviously, my life is, you know, tougher in a lot of ways. And, and, and you know, uh, um, I have my challenges, but my goodness, my goodness, I have two beautiful baby girls that I would never have had had I died that day. Um, I am now a U.S. senator and I get to write legislation that hopefully makes people's lives better because of that day. Um, and so I choose I choose to make that day that shoot down and the men who saved me my North Star. And, and every day I get up, I, I, I say a prayer of thanks for this gift of this day that I have. And I try to do better and, and live up to it. I know I know that you're very nimble. Or on those fancy high-tech legs, because in in the way of terrible podcast, right, we asked you to move room, didn't we, Ben? And then suddenly realised what what I'd asked you to do. But uh, do you, you you are obviously very committed. You make it, it work. What's the big difference between having legs that are man-made or man-designed as opposed to the biological sort? Oh, it's tremendously more difficult. I mean, I and I I actually use a wheelchair most of the time. Because of the way my amputation is on my right side, um, my, my, my artificial leg, uh, my prosthetic leg on that side is just very painful to wear, actually. Um, after it's cumbersome, it's uncomfortable. Uh, uh, if I wear it for any length of time, I will actually go into a period of phantom pain on that side of my body where my missing leg is in excruciating pain for, for sometimes hours, sometimes days. And so it's a tool for me. Um, uh, for me, it, it, in the book, I talk about how my artificial legs, because they're made of titanium, denote strength to me. Um, uh, they don't denote loss. They, they, they've become a tool. It's, it's for me, they're like hammers or, you know, a, a, a high speed drill. I always want one that's more powerful. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, I'm a tool junkie. Um, and, and, but, you know, do I wish I had my, my, my human legs? Of course, you know, I, I can't travel the way that I want to. I use a wheelchair most of the time. I, I, when I go to my daughter's school for field day, I can't do the three-legged race with her. Or if we did, we'd never win it. <laughs> but, but my goodness, every day is a gift. I'm still here. President Biden's committed to pulling troops out of Afghanistan by September the 11th. Of course, that's a highly symbolic day. And he's he's chosen that for a reason. We, we spoke to former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger uh, on the show last week, and he said he believed the US should maintain something of a presence in the country. He doesn't agree with that wholesale withdrawal. I think uh, also the head of the British uh, military, uh, General Nick Carter, said something similar. What do you think? I mean, you know, you've, you've been on, on the ground, you, you've paid very high price for your own service and involvement in interventions. Left, if you were making the decision, would you pull out of Afghanistan in such a wholesale manner? If 
there's a need for us to be there and maintain a presence there, then that decision needs to be made by the Congress of the United States. We are the only ones that can make that decision. And we must then have a debate on the floor of the House and the Senate, and then we must vote on it. The mission that those troops were sent there was debated and authorized under the authorization for use of military force. There were three of them, one in 2001, one in 2002, and one in 2003. Per the parameters set in those three AUMFs, we have finished the mission as defined by those AUMFs. I have talked about this for now many years, saying that it is wrong that the troops are still there under those old AUMFs. That's a bit of a technicality, isn't it? The, the truth is... No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not a technicality. It seems to me that really, once you get to the point where if you know that when you withdraw, the likelihood is that the Taliban return to power on the Taliban's terms in large parts of the country, then it would possibly, you could say it was the wrong decision and it may be that they should be there under this or that uh, piece of legislation, but that that's the price that you're basically asking Afghanistan to pay. No, 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 no. I think that the mission that the troops are there on is complete. Now, if we as an American people want to safeguard Af- the Afghanistan for the people of Afghanistan and want to preserve the rights of women and girls and all of that, if we want that, then we need to tell our members of Congress to cast that vote and have that negotiation with our allies, with the British and all that, so that then we will send our troops back there. And I, I would not I would not oppose that. My whole point as a, as a former soldier is that we, the members of Congress, have been cowards in facing our responsibility. And, and it is wrong to keep troops overseas under uh, uh, orders that are no longer relevant. The orders that they were sent there to was to basically find Osama bin Laden and kill him. We did that. Now, if the mission has changed and we want to give them a new mission, and that is to safeguard Afghanistan and maintain the protection, a protective force in Afghanistan against the Taliban for the people of Afghanistan, then let's have that conversation and let's cast that vote. And let's and let's have the guts to do that, because that's what our troops deserve. Our troops don't deserve to be over there fighting over the same three miles of territory back and forth, back and forth for 10 rotations uh, losing buddies, losing limbs with no end in sight because the the civilian leaders of our country don't have the guts to to have the conversation and cast the vote and be held on the record. I went to Iraq, even though I didn't believe in the war in Iraq, and I, and I didn't think that we should have been there because I truly believe that the civilian authority over the military is the foundation behind our democracy. So as a soldier, I willingly went, but I counted on the civilian leadership to set up the parameters and make the right decisions when my mission was done to bring me home or to assign me a new mission. The problem with Afghanistan is that we've never given them a new mission. And so I do support the president's decision to pull the troops back under the existing AUMS. Now, if we want to keep them there, then let's give them a new mission. And then we can talk about that. That doesn't seem to be in the Biden plan, though, does it? Well, I talked to President Biden and I said, Mr. President, I think we should have an argument. I think we should have a debate over the AUMF. And he said, Tammy, I am open to that. If Congress wants to send the troops back over there under a new AUMF, I am open to having that debate. And I had that personally in a conversation with him one on one. 
Let's talk about conflict uh, on the the home front, and it must have been very painful for you. I think you've you've spoken about this uh, if you're looking at what happened at the Capitol earlier this year. A number of pro-Trump protesters who stormed the Capitol in January were former military personnel. Some were active servicemen and women. What does that tell you about the Trump movement, about the anger that was still there in January and so dangerously, both for, for some of the protesters who were injured or lost their lives and for the lives that they endangered about them. What do you learn from it? Our Capitol Police officers did a remarkable job and were betrayed by all of those so-called patriots uh, and, and some of their own leadership um, uh, let them down. Um, what I will tell you is every single one of those people who stormed the Capitol betrayed this country. And especially those who are military men and women, uh, either veterans or currently serving, and as well as the people who were police officers who are among the protesters, they betrayed their oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Um, And those folks who did that basically swore an oath to Donald Trump over an oath throughout democracy. We were going through a democratic process as laid out in our Constitution, and nothing had been violated in that process when they stormed the Capitol to stop that process. That was an insurrection. And never in my entire 23 years I spent in uniform uh, helping to spread democracy and defend democracy around the world did I ever think that it was my own Capitol that was going to fall to insurrectionists. But it's interesting, Senator, that you say that, never did I think. And many people, good people of sound judgment, have that feeling. But is that a sign that something was missed? The Pentagon released a report last month saying white nationalism and white supremacy within the military poses a serious threat. Why do you think support for extremist groups has gone up recently in the military and for those more broadly in in uniform, if that is the case? And is there something of a turning of a blind eye here? Or perhaps simply that these are people who are just very, very unhappy with their position in the America that they live in. The military has changed in a significant way in in the past couple of decades, um, just as our society has changed. And a lot of that has to do with the media that we consume. I remember growing up in the military, every TV and any military building I'd be in was tuned to the Pentagon channel. And there was a Pentagon person reading the news to me or, or to CNN. But I will tell you that the younger members of our military in particular now largely consume media that is so segmented that uh, they don't even recognize it when they're not consuming news. They think it's news, but it's not. They're watching Fox and Friends, for example, and they don't realize that that is under the entertainment division of Fox Network, and it's actually not a news show. When you have a president and, his, and his, uh, all of his advisors and President Trump talking about you know, uh, alternative news, that's what happened. As far as extremism in the military, we've dealt with this before. And we've dealt with it successfully before. So I was speaking with Secretary Austin, uh, the Secretary of Defense, about this. He, he mentioned and reminded me that in the early uh, uh, 90s, actually, we dealt with some white extremism in the 82nd Airborne Division and that the military dealt with it then. So the military is capable of doing this. Um, I asked, I actually wrote a letter to Secretary Austin asking him to do a, a real deep dive. And, I, and one of the things I said is, please, let's look at how our military men and women are consuming media, because I think that is part of why they are where they are. Well, that that may well be true, but it fits, for me, a little bit too neatly into a particular progressive bubble of way of thinking about it. I mean, is there not another way to look at it that progressives, liberals, as you'd say, in the American uh, sense, have maybe left a sense of 
military service and a patriotism behind, or at least are perceived by some people who are vulnerable to bad messaging, to bad actors, to, you know, to not be sympathetic to them, to not understand them. Do you think there's any truth in that? There's absolutely no truth in that. I think if there is a military, if there is a party that is fully one that has truly supported the military and military men and women, it's Democrats. Uh, we are the ones that are fighting for quality of life issues for our military men and women. We are the ones that do not want to send them off into wars that never end uh, without real guidelines and, and, and on-ramps and off-ramps as to why they are there. We are the ones that are standing up to fight for the ability of more people to serve in the military. We're not throwing people out of the military because of their sexual orientation or, or, or their sexual identity. It, it almost sounds like you don't think they have anything to learn. No, 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 it's not that. What I'm saying is that, listen, I, I, am, I am at the forefront within my own party of talking to my colleagues about how we, deal, we talk with military men and women. In my own cockpit, that, that aircraft that got shot down, some of my crewmates were, were Trump voters. But together, we put the nation first. We put the nation and our democracy first, and then we took care of each other first. And what I've said to people is, I can work with anyone as long as they love this country as much as I love this country. Um, and that's that's how I go into any type of negotiations that I enter into. And when I'm in Illinois, remember, Illinois is a state that has six blue counties. People think of Illinois as a blue state. Uh, it's only six blue counties and 96 red ones. Uh, 6% of my voters were Trump Duckworth voters in 2016. Uh, so it's about making sure that people see them, uh, that, that they know that you see them and what their struggles are and acknowledging that and trying to do the best that you can to make their lives better. And that's the same as well as with the people in the military. But uh, just as you know, we, we've got the far left wing of my party and we have the far right wing, those of us who are in the middle need to figure out a way to be able to address the, the military men military men and women and, and let them know that we're here to support them. I'm pleased you mentioned Illinois because there are quite a few similarities between yourself and Barack Obama. Uh, obviously, your senators from, from Illinois were in the, the, the same seat. Barack Obama also with a mixed race background. It's almost too much of a glib question to say, well, God, that's interesting in both with mixed race backgrounds. And are you uh, are you interested in the big job? But I also like actually thinking about it more talking to you. I think the question is, what do you think would have changed for someone of your background, your intensity and clear drive from the days when Barack Obama was running from Illinois and trying to get a foot in the White House? Things have changed a lot. I think things are much more segmented. I think that he was able to move on to the national stage with, with his message of hope and, and bringing us together. And for a while, he, he united the country. But post-Trump, uh, our, our goal is now to try to heal these wounds. Last thought, very little seems to frighten you or, or stop you, not even the worst attempts of the enemy in battle. You must be scared of something. Are it spiders, snakes, clowns? What is it? <laughs> snakes and also anything that could harm my two girls. I have that irrational mom terror that something is going to happen to my two girls. That's a good answer, isn't it? That's a, if one has to be scared yeah. of something. And snakes. And snakes. <laughs> Got that out of you anyway. <laughs> and snakes. Yeah. Nowhere near your two girls. Thank you very much, Senator Duckworth, Tammy Duckworth, for joining us. Thank you. And we'd love to know what you think. Is President Biden right to pull all troops out of Afghanistan? Write to us, radio at economist.com 
or tweet us at Economist Radio. Tammy Duckworth's views were at odds with those of my previous guest on this question. Henry Kissinger thought that keeping a minimum presence on the ground was the better idea. Many of you, including listener Edward Fox, wrote in to say how much you enjoyed hearing Dr Kissinger's thoughts on the global standoff with Russia and China, as well as US interventions, though it's clear, judging by our inbox, that he remains a divisive character at the age of 97. If you haven't listened to my interview with Henry Kissinger, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, do subscribe to The Economist today. For your best introductory offer to all of our coverage, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. My producer today was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.